listening to the SLP Book Club. We're your hosts, Laura Geisert and Adrian Frost. This month, we're reading The Whole Brain Child by Daniel J. Siegel and Tina Payne Bryson. Let's get into it. Hi, Adrian. Hi, Laura. Welcome back to the SLP Book Club. This episode, we are doing chapter three of The Whole Brain Child. This chapter is Building the Staircase of the Mind. So this chapter is talking about the vertical integration, so integrating the upper and lower parts of the brain. They start this chapter with the story, they love to start with a story, of a six-year-old boy who's, who almost attacks his younger sister when she steals a special crystal from his treasure box and she ends up losing it. And the mom intervenes when he is about to physically attack her. But then he, when he's held back, he ends up telling the sister, you're the worst sister in the world. She's hysterical. The mom is telling the authors this and she's saying... What do we do if we can't be around our kids 24-7 to intercept when something bad is going to happen? How do we know when they're going to make the right decisions? What makes them make right decisions sometimes and other times resort to violence? Then they get into this analogy of the brain as a house with a downstairs and an upstairs. The downstairs is the lower part of your brain the brainstem, the limbic region, and this is responsible for your primitive basic functions like breathing and blinking, your innate reactions, and really strong emotions like fear and anger. And then the upstairs we know is the cerebral cortex, responsible for thinking, imagining, planning. It's very sophisticated. And that's where we're going to get those characteristics that we hope to see in our kids like sound decision making and empathy. A child with an upstairs brain that's working well is going to thrive. They consider consequences and consider the feelings of others. So vertical integration, picture a staircase that's connecting the downstairs and the upstairs brain. That way the upstairs can kind of monitor the actions of the downstairs. It can calm those strong reactions, impulses, and emotions. And there are also important bottom-up contributions. We always have to consider our physical and emotional feelings before we use the upstairs to decide on a course of action. And our downstairs brain is really well developed even at birth, but the upstairs isn't going to be fully mature until a person reaches their mid-20s. So it's really important for parents to understand that the upstairs of the brain is like a house that's being remodeled. And the downstairs is fine, but the upstairs, if you look up, is just barely framed. Maybe they don't even have the windows in, pieces are missing. So the characteristics you want to see children display are kind of depending on a part of the brain that isn't fully developed yet. And kids can get trapped downstairs and can't use their upstairs brain. I actually wanted to make a comment about that because I was thinking it's and I feel like I'm repeating myself because I know that we already talked about this in a previous episode, but it's so important to remember that children are really a work in progress, just like you're talking about, where it's like under construction. It's so easy to have expectations of children that you would have of another adult. And honestly, that's just setting everybody up for disappointment, right? So I thought this is just a really good reminder of, you know, your child does not have all the coping skills that you have. They don't have the reasoning skills that an adult has. And it's so important to enter a situation just remembering that. Yeah, absolutely. This was a good reminder for me because I've witnessed kids have those 
full-blown tantrums that seem so irrational to me or they're over something so silly. And to know that a child just does not have the part of their brain, that, that the lower part of their brain maybe has completely hijacked all the resources in their brain and they have no access to that part of their brain that says, let's calm down, this is okay, you can choose a different cookie, whatever the, whatever the thing is, you know. Yeah. So, and it's not necessarily their fault. You know, it's also yeah. just sometimes a biological thing, an evolutionary thing with our brains. Yeah. A signs that a kid has been trapped downstairs and does not have use of their upstairs brain would be poor decision making, flying off the handle, or having a real lack of empathy for other people. So then our authors get into the amygdala which is in the lower brain. It's they call it the watchdog of the brain. Its job is to quickly process and express emotions, especially anger and fear. It's always alert for times when we might be threatened and when it senses danger, it can really hijack the brain. So this is how when you're in a dangerous situation where you have to act really fast, you can just act without even thinking. I feel like these are those stories you hear of moms lifting cars off of their children and stuff. Oh, yeah. Your body just goes on autopilot. You don't even have to think about your reaction to things. Absolutely. When we're not truly in danger, though, we want to be able to think before acting instead of the other way around. So in children, when the amygdala fires up and blocks that stairway, it acts like a baby gate. They have no access to the upper part of their brain. And that's when you see a small child just suddenly erupt, throw a huge tantrum. The amygdala has totally blocked the top of the brain. It's impossible to reason with a child that's in that state. You have to soothe and redirect them, which will unlatch that gate and allow them to integrate the upper and lower parts of their brain. The same works for fear. So if a child, they gave the example of a child learning to ride a bike and she was so scared and she just would not do it. And they're saying the amygdala is just screaming to them that you might fall, you might get hurt. And it becomes totally paralyzing for the child. So Adrian, just like you just said, it's really unrealistic to expect children to always be rational and to regulate their emotions and make good decisions. We have to adjust our expectations and realize that kids are often doing the best they can with the brain that they have. But then the authors get into this interesting part about upstairs versus downstairs tantrums. <laughs> and I love this. Because oh, yeah. with our speech kids, <laughs> you know when you're being taken advantage of by an Manipulated, I think, is a good word. Manipulated. Yes, yes manipulation. <laughs> so an upstairs tantrum is when a child essentially decides to throw a fit. They're making a conscious choice to push your buttons until they get what they want. Sure. They could stop this tantrum in an instant if they wanted. They're able to control their emotions and their body to be logical and make good decisions, but they're working with a strategy. They're manipulating you to achieve a desired end. And the authors say, never negotiate with a terrorist. So I first heard this from Sasha Long from the Autism Helper. She always says mm. that, talking about kind of the difference when a kid's throwing a tantrum between using reinforcement, like making a uh, a deal with your kid before anything happens. Okay, if we, when we go to the store, if you're really well behaved when we're in the store, then you can get blah, 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 versus your kid throws a tantrum in the store and then you're bribing them 
if you stop this tantrum, I'll give you a chocolate bar. Do you know what I mean? It's so tempting, though. <laughs> and I mean, I feel for everyone because, <laughs> well, yeah, you know, in if you're in a store and a child's throwing a tantrum, everyone's looking. It's like, oh, I just want them to stop. But I always think about classical conditioning. And it's like once you let that line budge a little bit and you show them that they can be in control in the situation then when you're in that situation again next time, they just know you're going to fold and they'll push it and amp it up and up and up because they've yes. already been given that reward, you know? So uh, for everyone out there, I feel for you. Yeah. It's hard, but you got to hold the line. <laughs> I think everybody needs to go easy on parents and understand that they're doing the best they can. And if a kid is throwing a tantrum, yeah, I'd love if that parent gave them whatever they want so that they would quiet down. <laughs> but it's your choice and if you're go if you're standing firm, like more power to you. Good job. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, I had kind of a funny story. I uh I just took a course on becoming the pack leader because I am now in a house with three dogs and there was a little bit of confusion about who the pack leader was. Sure. My dogs were not, were not getting it. And I took this, this course and it has been life-changing. I am now moving into the position of pack leader. And I was telling my friend who has three kids about this. And she was like, my three children have no idea that I am the pack leader. Oh no. And I think it's this thing where if you budge even an inch, kids are so, they so quickly learn when they can get their way, that it's over. So my question is, if you give in one time, how do you repair it? Do you, oh, yeah. you just have to come up with a plan and stick with it? Yeah, you just have to be very, very firm and it will ratchet up. You know, I know that like sleep training is a good example and it's controversial and I get it. And if you don't feel comfortable doing it, you have to listen to your instincts. But for us, you know, it's like the behavior needs to, you have to have that extinction of the behavior so, you know, the first night where you're like, every time you cry, I'm not going to rush in. We have to start easing off of that. Oh, they ratchet it up and they cry and cry and cry and it gets louder and more dramatic and it goes on longer. But eventually they learn like, oh, the circumstances are changing, like the rewards no longer there. And then the behavior just dies out. So you just have to like, yeah, hunker down and just get through it and it gets harder before it gets easier but um kids really want to know that somebody is in control in a situation and I hope we're staying on topic here but that is a good way to show you know I'm the pack leader I'm in control and it can allow kids to relax a little bit I think <laughs> so just how I convince myself <laughs> yes for those listening I am not going to constantly compare my I think I'm going to make one more comparison with my dogs <laughs> possibly in this I chapter, but, but I do not think my dogs are human children. <laughs> I'm not one of those, those people. So these authors do say set firm boundaries and have a clear discussion about appropriate and inappropriate behavior. When you're, when you know that it's an upstairs tantrum, give consequences and follow through on them, which I think can be hard and use the upstairs tantrum to teach children important lessons if you refuse to give in to an upstairs tantrums, you will start seeing them decrease. You will not see them as often over time because children aren't going to use that strategy when they see that it's not effective anymore. So just like you said. Yeah. 
But let's move on to downstairs tantrums. This is when a child becomes so upset that he is no longer able to use his upstairs brain. The downstairs has taken over. The amygdala has hijacked the brain. Stress hormones are flooding the body and just no part of the upper brain is functioning. So if you're trying to reason with that kid, if you're being really firm, this child is not going to react well to that. The response by an adult needs to be more nurturing and comforting. You have to connect with the child and help him calm himself down. So use loving touch, a soothing voice. There's no sense in talking about consequences or appropriate behavior because It's not going to sink in. It's not going to resonate. Once you've calmed him down, then you can use more logic and reason. And you can talk about appropriate and inappropriate behavior and consequences because now you're teaching when the brain is more receptive to learning. Right. Well, I was thinking about this that, you know, in the speech room, a good example of like holding our boundaries and our limits in the speech room is our speech rules, right? Like everybody has different rules in their speech room. And they're pretty basic, but it's really important. Those would be the line that we need to hold, right? Because staying true to those is what gives us our authority in the speech room. So that's really important. And then also, I think it's really important to be aware of what a good consequence is because it's different for different kids. So you really also need to think, does this child really enjoy our five minutes of gameplay at the end of the session? Maybe removing that is a good consequence, or maybe they like picking whatever your whatever the task is. So whatever is a good motivation for that kid, maybe if you send a quick email to mom saying, you know, behavior was less than ideal, maybe that is the worst consequence. So for me, when I was thinking about that, I was just thinking about how individualizing the consequences is so key too. Yeah, definitely. And I struggled with that sometimes with certain students. You set up this system. If you have 65 students you're working with, you set up the system. Maybe they get a sticker on their chart. Once they get 10 stickers, they get a prize. I think some people say, I don't do the prizes. You know, it was difficult. That was my system. And if you said, I'm sorry, you're not getting your sticker today, the consequence was so delayed. It's like, well, I only have two stickers anyway. I'm not getting a prize for seven more weeks. You know, like, sure. Is there really even a consequence there? That's challenging in the speech room. There's only so much we can do. Yeah. (laughs) I would say worst case scenario, work with the teacher because the classroom teacher has a lot more access to things that are fun and it's like no kid wants to lose their fun Friday or whatever their reward is. So if you've got to pull out the big guns, you know, (laughs) I would say work with the teacher. (laughs) Yeah. And you know what? Also, kids loved going to speech so much. Oh, yeah. Speech is fun. There are very few kids that don't love going to speech. So a lot of times, not a lot of times, I'm not saying that I did this often, but with some kids, the consequence had to be speech is over now. We're going back to class. I don't care that we've only been here for 10 minutes. You know, letting them know, if you act like that, you don't get to spend time with me or, you know, in the speech room. Yeah, let's go back. I've been there too. All right. So in this chapter, we have three different whole brain strategies that they're going to give. So these have continued from the last chapter. This is whole brain strategy number three, engage, don't enrage. (laughs) Another little rhyme uh, appealing to the upstairs brain. So when your child is upset about something, you kind of have to make a decision about how you're going to react and whether you're going to appeal to the 
downstairs brain or the upstairs brain. Tina Payne Bryson gives an example of her four-year-old son at a restaurant being really mad, standing away from the table, glaring at them. And she knew that if she just commanded him to go back to the table, it would enrage him. His lower part of his brain had clearly hijacked his decision making. So she connected. She told him, it looks like you're feeling really angry. (laughs) Sorry. I did make a note to myself because she throws in that even though he didn't use it, one of his nicknames for her at that time was Fart Face Jones. (laughs) Which which made me laugh so hard. Like four-year-olds where her name doesn't have Jones in it. Fartface Jones, like, is that from a show? It makes me laugh so much. I want to call someone that. So I love that she included that, even though it had it had no relevance to the story. Yeah, it cracked me up. But it turned out he was mad that his dad was saying he needed to eat at least half of his quesadilla or he couldn't have dessert. So she told him she could see that that would be really disappointing. So that's that connection. She's telling him, oh, I I understand why you're upset. Then she told him, listen, dad's a good negotiator. So if you come up with an amount that you think is fair and you present it to him, then I'm sure that, that he can help you out. She ended up engaging his upstairs brain. Then he's thinking, comes back to the table. He tells his dad that 10 bites would be fair. And then it all works out. He ends up eating even more than his dad wanted him to. He was taught a lesson about connecting with other people, relationships, compromise. And Tina says that even though commanding him to sit down and finish the lunch would have been okay and might have worked, it would have missed an opportunity. And that's what we've been talking about throughout this book, that you're really using these everyday opportunities to not just survive the situation, but to thrive. You're giving your children or the children you work with these opportunities to integrate their brain. And he got to feel really empowered and know that he can solve problems and control his environment. And that's so powerful for kids. And then the parents later, I think back at home, discussed with him that it's not appropriate at a restaurant to go and be standing off to the side glaring at your family. And that he needs to be respectful sticking out your tongue <laughs> oh yeah was he sticking out his tongue yeah and so <laughs> sticking out your tongue yeah my daughter does that sometimes and it does make me feel pretty it's effective it makes me pretty... <laughs> kids just know um, how to get you. i have to say about this yeah they do um i really really liked this example because i think it highlighted differentiating your strategy based on the setting So what might be your normal reaction, maybe is not the best choice you already stated, right? She could have been like, go sit down. This is inappropriate. And it only would have made the situation worse, would have made him more mad. The whole dinner would have been really tense. He might have escalated his behavior. But using the strategy of connecting first was good there and it helped their whole meal to be smooth. And so I was thinking, you know, with speech... Maybe connecting first is more useful in a group. I mean, you know, individual is different story, but trying to be more authoritative might result in more disruption for the whole group, right? So like what a bummer to spend 10 minutes of a 30 minute session addressing one child's behavior while two or three other kids just kind of like sit there and listen. Yes. Yeah. It's a good lesson for them to see. You can't try, you can't pull this right in speech or whatever, But at the same time, I always acutely feel that those kids are missing their minutes and it's just not fair. So I thought, you know, sometimes we have to make that choice of 
I mean, I have definitely like stopped a session and gone on a lecture (laughs) with like drawings on whiteboards about appropriate behavior, right? But sometimes I think connecting first just goes a long way for rapport too, you know? Yeah. And the authors do point out that in some situations, children just need to have respect for your authority and no simply means no without any wiggle room. So of course, at school, in speech, there are some situations, especially if things are being thrown, if things are getting, you know, you kind of have to put your foot down sometimes. It's hard to navigate. But I think if you're able to gauge if a kid is being manipulative or really has no control, then you can decide to maybe make that connection. In this situation, using the words convince me or come up with a solution that works for both of us engages the upstairs brain and strengthens their problem-solving skills. This leads into the next whole brain strategy, which is use it or lose it, exercising the upstairs brain. And here, they give us five different ways to exercise the brain. So exercise decision-making, controlling your emotions in your body, self-understanding, empathy, and morality. And They say that the brain is like a muscle. When you use it more, it gets stronger. When it gets ignored, it doesn't develop properly. So look for opportunities throughout the day to help your child exercise the upstairs brain. So with decision-making, when you give children that opportunity to make decisions, it really strengthens the upstairs brain. So when they're young, it's maybe what color shoes do you want to wear, picking out clothes. When they're older, something like a scheduling conflict, instead of just telling your kid, no, you're going to band practice, you could, or you're going to volleyball practice, you can say going out with your friends will conflict with volleyball. Can you make a decision about which one you want to do? Helping them to make decisions so that it empowers them and it exercises that upstairs brain. They say to avoid making decisions for your children whenever you can, even when they make mistakes, which that's hard for me (laughs) to to let kids make mistakes and not correct them. But it is so important to let kids do things on their own and and make decisions, even if you know it's not the most effective or the thing that you want them to do, right? Yeah. I mean, I was thinking in regards to this, when I would have students who were really more anxious than most. These are the kids who seem distracted the whole session and it's because they were working on a um, maybe an assignment in class that was really important to them or they had a test even though the teacher was being really accommodating and you know said go to speech you can make it up later. These are the kids where that weighs really heavily on them and you can tell. So if I had a student like that and they were pretty you know up to date with their speech minutes I wasn't concerned about them falling behind I would give them the choice to go back to class if they wanted to. We would weigh the pros and the cons about missing speech, maybe talk about a makeup session later in the week, and I would allow them to make the choice. And I always saw that as really being beneficial to them. Their attitude was much calmer in speech because it wasn't this like push or pull where they really wanted something and felt like speech was like this non-negotiable. I felt like it became more of a working arrangement between us and everybody was happier in the end. I love that. I was even thinking, even with my preschoolers, usually I set up my sessions for stuttering. If I'm doing syllable time speech, we kind of choose what we're working for. And I know that sometimes if a child wants to play the same thing for both 
rewards, they have to make that decision. Oh, you want to play that one? Well, we won't, then we won't get to play with this other thing I brought today. Like we'll have to wait till next week. And then they kind of make the decision. So even as young as preschool or three, four years old, you can be allowing them to make decisions during your sessions. And kids feel so much more calm when they feel like they had a say in what's going on. Absolutely. The next exercise is controlling your emotions in your body. So it's, you know, we teach kids all of these strategies for calming yourself down when you get really worked up, like counting to 10, taking a deep breath, expressing your feelings. If you need to, stomping your feet or punching a pillow. We've all been there. Yeah. <laughs> and it's it's good to just teach them about what's happening in their brains when they feel like they're losing control. So at the end of this chapter, we're going to see they have a really good little hand model or a little cartoon that teaches about the upstairs and downstairs brain because even small children can stop and think before they lash out or hurt someone and every time they do make that decision to stop they're really strengthening their upstairs brain the next one is helping kids with self-understanding so asking questions that help them look beyond the surface of what they understand so when kids do something you could say why do you think you made that choice or what made you feel that way or even if they had trouble on a test maybe why do you think you didn't do well on your test. So examples of ways for older children to use this is journaling. And for younger children, you might have them draw pictures of things that happen or that tell a story. And then another exercise you can do is empathy. So ask simple questions that encourage the consideration of other people's feelings. You can ask your kids, why do you think that baby's crying? Or that woman wasn't very nice to us. Do you think something might have happened to her that made her feel sad today? Which this is something I'm working on a lot in my own life, not with kids. Love that. <laughs> when people are rude to you for no reason, it's hard to not turn like, what did I do to them? <laughs> Even people driving. And I heard, I forget who I heard, it was someone on a podcast talking about making other people a hero. Absolutely. When someone's driving rude, thinking maybe they're rushing to the hospital. Oh my god! <laughs> you know, just trying instead of getting mad and, and being like, what? What's wrong with that person trying to make them a hero? And it totally changes the way you feel about the situation. <laughs> and so when someone's rude or mean, it is so interesting to teach kids to think about those things. Oh, what, what do you think could be going on with her mm -hmm. that made her so sad today? Especially for speech therapy. I was just going like ding, ding, ding in my head as I was reading this because this ties in with so many pragmatic goals. I mean, for any of my mild mod SLPs out there who work with a middle school caseload, but even elementary kids, you know, anybody who uses Michelle Garcia winner stuff. I, know. I was like thinking about you thinking about me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's huge. And I mean, even just asking like, why do you think that baby was crying? Why do you think that woman was so grumpy? What a fun inferencing exercise to just sort of talk about when you're leaving the store or in the speech room, you know, oh, it seemed like Mrs. Jones was kind of a little grumpy with you guys when I just picked you up from the classroom. What do you think could be going on? Oh, well, you know, she had to tell us to be quiet three times. It's like, oh, well, you know, it is getting close to the holidays. But anyway, <laughs> yeah, I just I was really like I was reading that and I was like, wow, everybody can benefit from more empathy. And I love I mean, even you could just start off your speech session with one pragmatic question, maybe a situation 
everybody talks about it. I just, I love these things that get everybody talking and are beneficial too. Yes. I was thinking about that, about starting out the session, but then the example you just gave where it's so much more valuable for kids when it's a real life situation. Like if there was something like a teacher seeming kind of like she's at her wits end (laughs) and you're able to talk about maybe why and maybe how their behavior in the class impacts their teacher and the way she feels, you know, there's so much value you can get out of just talking about those things as they come up. And that's what they keep saying in this book. It's not even like you have to do this extra activity, just talking about things as they're happening and helping kids understand how other people are feeling and why. The next exercise is morality. So helping kids make sound decisions and control themselves and working from empathy. And then they'll they'll develop a really robust and active sense of morality, not just of right and wrong, but really what is for the greater good beyond their own individual needs. So you can raise questions about morals and ethics as often as possible. So hypothetical situations, you can ask, would it be okay to run a red light if it was an emergency or if a bully was picking on someone at school, what would you do? So just asking those types of hypothetical questions, challenging children to think about the way they act and consider implications of their decisions can be really beneficial. And then obviously model honesty and generosity and kindness and respect in your own behavior so that when they see the way you're acting, that helps their upstairs brain develop. And then our last whole brain strategy for this chapter, this was a doozy of a chapter. This is a long one. I'm sorry. Our last whole brain strategy is number five, move it or lose it, moving the body to avoid losing the mind. So research has shown that moving your body directly affects brain chemistry. And when a child loses touch with his upstairs brain, having him move his body could help regain that balance. So they told a story of a 10 year old who was just had way too much homework, was really overwhelmed and suddenly took off running out the front door and just ran around the block and got home, calmed down, had a snack and then told his mom, He had no idea why he did it. He just felt like he would feel better if he ran as fast as he could for as long as he could. And it did help. He was able to let his mom help with his homework. So just that movement helped him get past that overwhelm. And this is where I'm going to just bring in my dogs one more time. (laughs) If you have a dog that ever gets the zoomies, which in my house we call the crazies, (laughs) it usually happens at the end of the day, at the end of the night. And I think it's just whatever energy they couldn't get out. And they just go whipping around your house in this circle. And then... (laughs) And then they settle down. My dog, one of my dogs does it every night. He just has so much energy, so much energy. And then the last thing he does is zoom around everywhere. And then he just flies into the bed and falls asleep. I don't know. I don't know what that's about, but it does just seem to help like finally calm him down. Yeah. And this is definitely one of those things where it's like some kids might need this. Maybe our kiddos who have ADHD could benefit from, I know I have kids who need movement breaks during speech where we got to get up or they really benefit from games that are more physical. Even if we're still targeting speech goals, we can jump I actually have this one game. I can't remember what it's called. It's from Peaceable Kingdom, which I love their games. And it's a monkey game with a little banana. And (laughs) I originally bought it for my daughter, but I was like, wow, you know, this would be so great for speech. And each card is like something to do with the banana. You put it on your back and walk around the room. And it's just like fun little tasks to do. And I have kids older kids, fourth graders, fifth graders requesting this game. (laughs) It was kind of like my hit that year that I really used it. (laughs) 
So yeah, they just say that you can even explain the concept to a child when they're feeling really overwhelmed or upset about something. You can say, I know you're mad. Let's go for a ride on our bikes. We could talk about it. Sometimes moving your body can help your brain feel like things are going to be okay. So you can tell your child or the child you're working with, let's just get moving because that might help you feel better. And then the authors, like I said, include this way to teach kids about the concepts. So they use kind of a little hand model where the thumb You like make a little fist and your thumb is tucked under and that's your downstairs brain and the fingers on top are your upstairs brain. And it's really visual and tactile. I like it because they kind of say all your strong emotions and feelings and fear are down here on your your thumb, your downstairs brain, and then your upstairs brain helps you control them. So when it's down touching, it's there's like a staircase, but then when you flip your lid, your upstairs brain can't help your downstairs brain. So they say when you're feeling those feelings of a lot of frustration or anger, you flip your lid. So if you pull your fingers, it helps the kids to remember. I don't know if this would work. What do you think? Yeah, I loved it. I thought it was helpful for me. Like I was like, wow, it's a nice visual. It is. I loved it. <laughs> I loved it. Where, you know, a kid in the moment, they might look at their hand and remember, or you could just give them a signal maybe if you're in a public place. Yeah. Like I could see that being really helpful. Yeah. Or in a speech room, if you were to introduce the concept and kind of some kids don't like being called out, maybe you could use it as a little signal like, oh, we're getting a little close to flipping our lid or I feel the tension. Let's like engage our upstairs brain. <laughs> Absolutely. No, I, I did. I liked it. It worked so perfectly. I love the way when you flip your lid, the fingers come up. They really have some great visuals in this book. Yeah, cute. And then they also included, you know, the integrating ourselves, the little part in the back of the chapter that's for the adults. So it includes information about how to calm yourself down when you as an adult or parent flip your lid and are in danger of either hurting your child or saying something really hurtful. And of course, we all wish that this doesn't happen. Yikes. It was a little dark. It was a little dark. But I mean, obviously. Obviously, I mean, every parent knows there are times and I mean, even as a teacher, there are times where it's like, I need a break. Obviously, we would never get physical with our students ever. But just to have some good strategies, I thought this was a nice section. Yeah, just taking a little break, moving your body. Maybe you need that. Maybe you need to just get up and walk around. And then after you've calmed down, then you immediately try to reconnect with that child and repair anything that just happened. If you did yell or or get upset. All right. And then just as a reminder for members of our Patreon, we do have a little visual for our upstairs and downstairs brain that you can print off that just kind of teaches about the upstairs brain and downstairs brain and how you can connect them with your little staircase. So if you are a Patreon member, go ahead and access that on patreon well thank you laura for that great summary i think chapter three had so much good information that we can all bring to our speech therapy caseload and lots to benefit from for sure yeah yeah i agree all right so that is it for chapter three of the whole brain child thank you so much for listening and stay tuned chapter four will be coming out next friday the 20th so we will not be releasing an episode on Tuesday, but look for chapter four next Friday. Bye, Adrian. Bye, Laura. The SLP Book Club is not just a podcast. It's a community. Go to facebook.com slash groups slash the SLP Book Club to join the discussion after each episode. Want even more of the SLP Book Club? 
You can become a Patreon member by going to patreon.com slash the SLP book club. You'll get access to bonus content, including chapter summaries and amazing printables that can be used directly with the children you work with in speech therapy. To learn more about the SLP book club, go to the slpbookclub.com. You can contact us by emailing hello at the slpbookclub.com. Follow us on Instagram at slp underscore book club. 